Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. It is great to see you all this morning, great to worship with you. My name is Bill Rydell. I am one of the pastors here. Let's pray, and we're going to jump right in. Father, thank you for the chance to be together today, um, even now as I, hear, as I hear everyone greeting each other and see the expressions on people's faces, we can feel the love that people have for each other in this room, and we thank you for that. We pray for those who aren't able to join us in worship today, whether those who are joining online or whether they're traveling, that you would um, also stir their hearts to look at Christ. And Lord, as we open your word, we ask now that you would show us what you have for us. And so we pray this in Christ's name, amen. amen. In 1967, uh, the Beatles released an album called Yellow Submarine. Some of you remember that, uh, mostly I think visiting parents. <laughs> uh, the last song on the first side of the album was, was All You Need Is Love. And so this might be familiar to you, it's the, it goes, there's nothing you can do that can't be, I'm not going to sing for you this morning on that. <laughs> All right. <so. laughs> There's nothing you can do that can't be done, nothing you can sing that can't be sung, nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game, it's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made, nothing you, no one you can save that can't be saved, nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time, it's easy. All you need is love, all you need is love, <laughs> all you need is love, love is all you need. That topped the charts in, in, in 1967 and became an anthem for the summer of love, and it's a sentiment that has shaped more than a generation since. It, and, and how can you question anything that comes down to what a person loves? And how can love ever do any harm? It's, it's a warm and sentimental and fanciful idea. So today we're going to look at the question of what is love? See, I could go into another song. Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so, but we're going to look at the, at the idea of love because the, the verses we're going to read today, today is a shorter section that we're going to read together, but in this section, Jesus talks about the mark of the Christian. That's the title for the sermon, but I want you to see that. This is not a mark of Christians. This is the mark of, of the Christian is love. And so we're going to see what, it, what Jesus' call is for, to us, what it means to love, and what it means to follow Jesus, and love is at the center of that. And so the mark of the Christian is love. We're in John chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me there, um, or open your phone or whatever device you have. It'll also be on the screen for you. And so in the context, we have now entered, um, in, Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet, Judas had just left the room, and so it's Jesus and 11 of his disciples together. And it says this, when, G when he had gone out, that's Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little time while I am with you. 
You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in, in the Gospel of John, we've been studying this for a while as a church, it, John wrote this Gospel down so that we would be able to understand who Jesus is. That's the primary question that the Gospel is trying to answer. Who is Jesus? Why is it important? And why does it matter? And John tells us that he wrote these things down, that there, there's more than he could have ever written down, but he wrote these things down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we've been in this study together attempting to explore and, and answer that question, who is Jesus? Today's passage begins what is called the farewell discourse in John. What that means is that the teaching that takes us through the next several chapters is at the table as Jesus is with these 11 disciples. Judas had left, and you remember last week as, as Judas left, it ended in darkness, that it, and it was night. And so Jesus then turns to the 11, and John, who was in the room, sitting next to Jesus, or reclining next to Jesus at the table, because if you remember, Peter had motioned to him and said, hey, ask Jesus who it is that's going to betray him, and John leaned back, leaned his head into Jesus' chest and talked to him. So John was right next to him for these things that Jesus taught. These are the last things Jesus taught before he was betrayed and went to his death on the cross. And so it makes sense that he stuck with John, right? It's the final night he spent. The lot would have been crystallized and clarified and stuck in your memory here. The same way that there are moments in our lives that we look back on and can remember them with clarity because of their importance in time. And so within this, we're going to see a whole bunch of emphases in what Jesus leaves his disciples with. But this is where it begins. In this section that has been loved and held by Christians across every context and culture for two millennia. And so it begins by Jesus saying, a command... He gives them a command that is so simple that any toddler could memorize it, but it's so profound that the most mature of us can't help but be convicted. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so today we're looking at, again, the mark of the Christian. Um, this is the title. I stole the title. It's from Francis Schaeffer. He has a book called The Mark of the Christian. It's very short, and I recommend it. It's, it's a fantastic look at love, and I'm going to draw heavily on it today. Um, so if you hear anything good, it's probably Schaeffer. Um, there's, I'm, I've credited it, and um, we can move forward. Now, we know... So as we talk about marks, though, this is something that we, we understand, right? We are in a, in a culture and a context that is pretty obsessed with marketing and logos and design and ways for us to quickly recognize brands. Um, yesterday, I was driving with, going out to a, a RHC kid's birth, first birthday party, um, which he will remember for the rest of his life. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, but was riding with, with the Mitchells and Maya, as soon as we got in the car to come home, started asking, um, can we go to Old McDonald? Uh, and she knew, she was looking, she was like, right, look for it, and she was like, I need golden arches. And so she, she knew what to look for. She, we drove by, I don't know, it was like an auto parts store or something that was red and yellow, and she goes, there it is! Like, no, remember, you have to look for the arches. But we know marks. With clothes and shoes, this becomes important. 
People will have their identity wrapped up in different designers or clothing or shoes or brands. Or, or some of us are pretty uh, immersed in and now feel stuck forever by a logo that has an apple with a bite taken out of it. No matter what they put out, I'm going to end up with it in my pocket. Well, as we look at love today, these, these are marks that identify, um, that identify and immediately make us think of an entire concept, brand, the kind of people who use those marks. But, and they're marks that identify immediately who made it and whose it is. And so God, as designer, has his label on his people. He made us. And if you're in Christ, you are his and so the call to us is that we love one another. So we're going to look at four aspects of love today as we talk about it. We're going to look at the origin of love, the twisting of love, the outworking of love, and the witness of love. So first, the origin of love. <clears throat> Jesus begins this, um, this farewell discourse, and he starts by saying, this is it. This is the moment where I'm going to be glorified. Now, this, this idea of glory has been present throughout John, and Jesus keeps talking about when he will be glorified. And, and the great paradox in the Gospel of John especially is that the glory of Christ is in his death on the cross, something that we would not naturally see as glorious, that his disciples could not, could not be, begin to believe would be something glorious. That's why we see in, throughout all four Gospels that Jesus told his disciples over and over again, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested and suffer and die, and then I'm going to be raised on the third day. And then when they get to Jerusalem and he's betrayed and he gets arrested and dies on the cross, his disciples scatter because they didn't see it coming. They couldn't comprehend that, but he says, this is the moment. God is going to be glorified in me, the Son of Man, is, and, and in that, God will glorify the Son of Man. And so he begins in verse 33, though, if you look, and I love this, because you can feel his love for his disciples. What he says, little children, I'm only with you a little while longer. And you're going to look for me, and just as I've said to the, the Jews, the Jewish people who were not following him, he said, just as I said to them, I'm saying to you, where I'm going right now, you cannot come. And so he begins, you can feel his heart for his disciples. Um, this language that he uses is this, the Greek word technia, the little children. It's only used here in his gospel, but John uses that seven times in his first letter that we read later when he addresses his own readers. And so you can feel that this made an impact on John as Jesus saying, my little children, here's what I've got to say to you. Jesus is leaving them, and he loves them, and he's concerned for them. And remember, he had just given an example to them by washing their feet, and he said, this is an example for you, but we also looked and understood that Jesus is our substitute before he's our example. So, so they had seen an outworking of love as he washed their feet, but they were about to see the ultimate standard for love as Jesus goes to his death on the cross. And so he says, I have a new commandment for you. A new commandment I give to you. Now, that sounds a little bit strange if you've read the bulk of Scripture and understand that whenever Jesus got asked what is the greatest commandment, he would always say, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And to, the second one's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Those were not things that Jesus created. That He was being asked what is the greatest commandment in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Covenant, within the Torah. And so he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 
love the Lord your God with all that you are. And he quoted Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus was pointing out that this sums up all the law and all the prophets, those two commandments, to love God and love your neighbor. And so it's not that these are brand new. These aren't things that were never communicated before. It's not like Jesus said, I have a new commandment for you, love one another. And people shouldn't have been going, oh, really? Like this is something that, that they understood. But So what's new about it? Well, this night and this meal that Jesus was having with his disciples, remember, this is a Passover meal where they were celebrating God's deliverance of his people from slavery to Egypt with the killing of a lamb and the blood of the lamb protected people from the, the angel of death that moved its way through Egypt. And God brought his people out of Egypt. And so the, the Jewish people would and still continue today to celebrate the Passover as a reminder of God's redemption and salvation. And so Jesus, as the ultimate Passover lamb, his, his cousin John had said, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the ultimate Passover lamb was celebrating Passover with his disciples, and we see in other gospels as he, as he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper and celebrate weekly as a church, that he said, this is my body which is broken for you, and this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. See, what, Jesus, what is new about this commandment is that it's in the context of a new covenant. It's a new covenant that was anticipated by the prophets. And so if you go and read in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah talks about this new covenant that's coming and that hearts of stone will be replaced with hearts of flesh and, our, and his law will be written on our hearts. And if you read Ezekiel 36, the prophet looked ahead to a, a new covenant and a new work that God was going to do. And so these were expectations for hundreds of years before Jesus he lived in, and walked on this earth. And so this commandment is highlighted by Jesus as the primary directive, the, the shaping reality for this new community of God's redeemed. He was reestablishing the people of God who shaped and formed not by ethnicity and bloodline, but instead by a commitment and belief in him. And so he's, he starts off by this new community. When he is shaping this in the disciples, what he says to them is, okay, children, I'm, I'm going to be gone soon. So this is the thing you have to remember. And it's, it's a heavy calling because what they're being called to do is reflect the love that is God. Remember, God has lots of characteristics. We can talk about God's omnipotence, his power, his omniscience, that he knows all things. But scripture says that God is love. And, and the reason that's possible is because God eternally existed in triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in love with one another, within the one that is the Godhead. This is the mystery of the Trinity that's presented to us in Scripture. And so what is happening when Christ calls us to love uh, and, and that his love is, is that his love is the foundation for that. It's the origin of that. And it's the response for us as, as we understand God's love truly because what we are being invited into is a participation in the life of the triune God. So is all you need, all you need is love? Well, if we're talking about the eternally existing love of God the Father extended to us through the sacrificial death of God the Son and poured into our hearts by God the Spirit to redeem us and extend that love to the world through us, then yes, all we need is love. 
And Tony Evans said, biblical love is the decision to compassionately, responsibly, and righteously pursue the well-being of another person. Love is a decision that seeks another's best, regardless of your feelings. That is not the way we use the word love. When we use the word love, we are usually are talking about a feeling. And we can use it all over the place. Like, we can use it in ways that are really deep and profound, of saying, like, why is it that we, that we can say, like, I love wings? But then, I remember when I was, like, when Alyssa and I were first dating and falling in love, how big a deal it was to finally say, like, I love you. And you're like, is she going to say it back? Am I... Is this the end? Why is it so hard to tell someone you love them and so easy to talk about your love for wings? <laughs> because we know that we use the word and we have all kinds of different layers of meaning and ways that it gets used. The same is true in scripture. I know that some people, times people will make a big deal about different Greek words, but generally it's, it's a similar thing. But, but love, in a biblical love, is never just a desire for something or an emotional feeling that we feel. It's not just warm fuzzies that we get inside where we feel like we're floating on clouds and forget what life is. No, love is a decision to seek another's best regardless of your feelings. Now, the calling here is tough because, let's be honest, Christians can be hard people to love. Especially right now, if you look around us, and if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, then let me just say, like, I see it too. You look around right now at social media and the cesspool it is among so-called Christians that the infighting and the attacks and the constant belligerence and Christians who spend their whole lives policing others they don't know behind an anonymous avatar. And it's depressing. But... This is also why I'm increasingly convinced of the importance of a local church. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff happening out there and in places that are not in here, and we can't be responsible for somebody with an anonymous account. But if you're a part of Redemption Hill or if you're part of a church, you are responsible to love the people that God has put right there with you. That's what it means to love one another. Now, let's talk about the twisting of love. We don't always get this right. The origin of love is in God, because God is love, and so it's an outflow of the love of God that makes it possible for us to love. But it gets twisted. Like we, we get things wrong. There are limitations to our love. We, we get a wrong focus in love. And, and so our love is typically self-focused rather than others-focused. Right? This is, even when we talk about loving somebody, you know, let's take it down a notch from like, I want to marry this person. Like, let's just say we're talking about a friend. We say, ah, I love that guy. He's great. Often what we're saying is not, I love that guy. I would do anything for him, and I would wake up in the middle of the night to go and help him. You, often I think what we're saying is, I love the way that I feel when I'm with that person. Therefore, I love him. And so we, our, our love tends to be pretty selfish. We tend to be pretty selfish, if we're honest about it. We're all closet narcissists running around in this place. And, and, but, but in that... <clears throat> It makes sense because things get twisted up in us, and this is the result of the broken world that we live in. This is the result of Satan twisting things too. Satan can't create anything. All he does is kill and steal and twist and destroy. And so it makes sense that Satan would move in us or suggest to us lesser versions of divine attributes. 
There's failures throughout church history where Christians did not love like God loves. And there's a reality now. But here's the truth. This is what we were designed for. Our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus says. And so that's, when we hear that even, it's hard to comprehend what that is, but what Jesus is saying when he says the first commandment, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What he is saying is the way that we are to love God, the way that God wants our love for him is all of us. It's holistic. It's not just an emotion. It's not just the heart. It includes our minds. It's, it's a decision and an understanding. And, and it also includes our strength. That means the will to do. So it'll, our love for God will be reflected in our lives and the way that we live. But we have a tendency, each of us, to be really good at one of those aspects, maybe two, right? So we might say, like, okay, love God with all my mind. I am going to read my Bible consistently and deeply. I'm going to read theology. I'm going to come to know all that I can possibly know about who God is. That's a good pursuit. If you're exploring whether or not Christ is Lord and Savior, as Scripture claims he is, then yes, go and read as much as you can and learn as much as you can about him. This is a reasoned faith. This is not just a blind leap. If you're a Christian and you're claiming to worship God in Christ, then yes, you should have a desire to learn more about the one who you worship who created you. But you notice that it doesn't say this new command I give to you, know God as much as you can. Now there's something more there. That's an aspect of who we are, but we are not just heads on sticks. On the other hand, sometimes the heart, for others of you, the heart might come easier. So you can feel a sense of love. You feel something when you come and worship. You, you probably experience worship more fully than some of the others around you, certainly than the heads on sticks. They're more likely to do this during worship. <laughs> but in that, there's more than just emotion to love. Yes, that's an aspect of it, but it also has, it takes understanding. And, and for my, my concern is that in our streams that Redemption Hill is in theologically, we tend to do fairly well on the cognitive aspect, understanding who God is and digging deeply into theological concepts. We tend to do pretty well on the heart aspect of feeling a love for God and experiencing something of God's love both toward God and with each other. And there's also a call to do. Now, some of you are, that's the easy part. You are easily convinced to be an activist. Great. Is, are the other two pieces connected? And so it takes all of us to love. And the soul, as Jesus talks about, is, is the essence of who we are. It's, it's made up of these other three, our hearts, our mind, our strength. And so some, with this, here's the scary part. I heard this this past week. At, um, it was mentioned that our, our pastoral staff and, and some of our staff, and not all the staff, but we were, some of us were able to go to, up to a conference um, up in Pennsylvania this week. And one of the speakers said this, and I told her I was going to steal it, but I'll put her on the screen so you can see who said it. Is she said, a failure to love with heart, mind, and strength integrated together, our inability to love holistically is literally a disintegration of the soul. And so when Jesus is calling us to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, what he's saying is, this is how you are put back together, is the love of God moving in you will bring all of you, the pieces of you together, and that is an outpouring of worship as your soul cries out to your maker. 
It takes God's love to piece us back together, to redeem us, to heal us, and make it possible for us to love because our love on its own gets twisted. And so that's an origin of love is found rooted in God through Christ. The, the twisting of love happens in every one of us, but now let's look at the outworking of love. What does this look like practically in our lives? What does real love look like? What does it look like to love from the depths of our souls with all our hearts and our minds and our strength and to love others as ourselves? Well, even there, people talk about this, and I think it's a, a good visual, that this is a cruciform love, that there's a vertical aspect. Love God with all you are and make sure that your eyes are set above where he is. And there's a horizontal aspect to what we're called to. It's not just our relationship with God that we keep private, but the impact will be spread as we then are channels for God's love to the people around us whether they are, are in the family of God with us or outside of the family of God, that Christians are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. C.S. Lewis talked about four loves. He has a short book called The Four Loves. And in there, he looks into four words that are used in classical Greek. Now, again, when you get to the New Testament, some of these words are used fairly interchangeably. Um, so I don't want to make too much of them in New Testament context. But in classical Greek, there were four words that were used for love that C.S. Lewis walks through. And these are important because it it, we don't think this way very often. The first one is storge. Storge is empathy or charity. It's seeing someone and you, you have, your heart bleeds for them and you want to be able to help them. And so that is a way to love. The second one is philia. This is where you get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the most oxymoronic name for a city. Um, <laughs> sorry, Philly people. <laughs> I mean, they threw batteries at Santa Claus. Like, <laughs> um, philia is friendship, brotherly love. Um, C.S. Lewis says that actually this is one of the deepest of the loves, and that and I'm convinced that part of the problems we have around us right now is we have lost the concept of friendship and love for another person because we've replaced it with the third one, which is eros. Eros, you can probably figure out the meaning just from the root. It's, this is romantic love or sexual love. Now, culturally right now, sexual love has become the only way we think about love. And when we say, is love all you need, or can it do anybody harm to, to love something and, or someone? Like, that's, this is the question we ask, but usually we're talking about sexual love, eros. And C.S. Lewis says, this is actually the cheapest of the loves. It's the one that you can have without a deep self-sacrificial love. And the fourth is agape, which is an unconditioned self-sacrificial love. And so these are different aspects, four ways that we love and that it works itself out. And it's important to distinguish between those because having a concern for somebody is not the same thing as self-sacrificial love for them. It doesn't have to be the same thing as erotic love, and it, and it probably shouldn't be. When we talk about friendship and brotherly love, philia, or brotherly or sisterly love, that's what we're called to in the church, is that we're called the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ with one father. Well, that's a deep love of friendship, and we can be friends with each other without it becoming erotic love, or without it being charity. And so, and, and agape is, is the kind of love that is shown by God in self-sacrifice. And so, this is when we read, like, the, what, the idea of love and what love means is, is when we get to John 15, 13, which we're going to get to in a, in a few weeks, when Jesus says there, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Saying this is the outworking. What does it mean to love one another? 
Well, there's no greater love than a willingness to lay down your life for your friends. Love gets talked about also in another well-known Bible chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. I want to go there briefly because this is a really great look at the practical outworking of love. Now, you'll hear this passage quoted at weddings all the time. It was not written primarily for weddings. I'm sorry to, be the, to burst those bubbles. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is one of the most extensive passages that we have in the New Testament on understanding spiritual gifts and what, how God gifts his people to build up the church. And so within that, there's, the gifts had gone off the rails in Corinth. Things were crazy in that church. And so Paul was trying to bring things back and say, okay, there's one spirit and many gifts. And you don't choose where, how God gifts you, but he will gift you in, in ways and gift others other ways. And so we need, there's room for all of us in the body of Christ. But he says, now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. He says, he says this is the one normative gift. That means that this is the gift that everyone, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have the Spirit of God within you, every one of us should reflect this gift. The most excellent way, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have knowledge, all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I don't think I've ever thought of this, but as I read it right now, this is the three aspects that we just talked about. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, Paul later in chapter 14 describes that as being at a point where our souls cry out from our hearts because our minds lack the words. He's saying, if I have the mind to understand and prophesy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, then, but not love, then, then I'm, it's nothing. If I do everything that I'm called to do and, and I give away all that I have, and so if I'm, if I'm self-sacrificial in my actions but don't have love, then I gain nothing. And so even over these, this is, this is that love is the, the foundation for all of it. And then he goes on to say, love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, the chapter goes on to say that, that you know, we are going to see face-to-face. -face. Now everything is dim to us, but, but the greatest three that God gives us are faith and hope and love, but the greatest is love because it is what extends forever. And so this is, this, there's 15 verbs here that Paul gives us on what love looks like. Should we do a test and see how many we've accomplished? <laughs> Patient. Well, I'm out. We, we go through this list, and it, it can feel overwhelming if you actually take this seriously. Now, there's definitely a message here that, that each one of these provides us an opportunity and a need for repentance, and, and it's a reminder to us that, that being in church together is not primarily about us and having our needs fulfilled or desires fulfilled. It's primarily about serving others and joining Jesus on his mission, being able to be used by God to save people from sin and death. It's about giving hope and life. What makes it difficult is 
that this is an indictment of our inability to love, and the harder we try to do these things, the harder we will fail. Have you ever decided, I am going to be more patient? I guarantee you, all that will happen if you make that decision in your life is you will be frustrated and believe that God has given you more instances trying to prove your own impatience. I'm going to be a kinder person. I'm going to stop envying. I'm going to stop being rude. I mean, maybe you can make some incremental progress, but this takes the work of God's Spirit within us And each one of these, though, on the other hand, shows us God's love for us in Christ. See, here's the good news, is that that in Romans 5, we we learned that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And so God isn't expecting us to nail all of these on our own. He's saying, no, 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 this is why God took on flesh and the person of Jesus Christ and went to the cross for us, is so that he could show us this kind of love and then fuel us by his spirit to love this way. You see, it's Jesus' patience that allows us to be patient with others. It's his kindness that moves us in kindness toward others. Jesus' sacrifice frees us from envy for personal gain, and Jesus' submission eliminates any ground we have for boasting. Jesus' humility has saved us as he humbled himself even to death on a cross so that God glorified him, and that makes it possible for us to, to realize that we are hopeless on our own so we can't be arrogant. Jesus' holiness removes our desire for shameful behavior. He sought our good so that we might seek the good of others. He exposes our sin so that we, if we understand that, our, that we, our own sin is exposed, we have no right to be irritable with others. Jesus died for others' sin, and, and we can't continue to count others' sin against them if he went and died for them, and on the cross was saying to those who killed him, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. So we better not be resentful. Jesus fills us with the Spirit so that we won't celebrate sin, but actually have a desire for good. Jesus is the author of all truth, and through him we can know and be known. So praise God that we can begin to rejoice in truth. Jesus bore the cross so that we can bear all things with others. He, his faithfulness strengthens us to be able to believe all things, and his resurrection provides, provides the hope for all things. But Jesus' endurance of suffering equips us to endure all things. It is the lo- Leslie Newbegin said, it is the love of Christ which constitutes this new community. The actual presence of the love of Jesus operative in the life of a community will be what identifies it as his. Love is our designer tag. So that's the origin of love. The twisting of love and the outworking of love Now let's look at the witness of love. It is really easy to read this passage. And I think as I was studying it, there was a, in the initial ramp up toward this sermon, I I had this point where I was kind of stuck in this point too. It's really easy to read this passage and kind of stop and say, okay, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So three times, the word love is connected to one another. So this is a word to the church. Again, if you're not a Christian today, this is what Christ has called his people to, 
And so if, you're, if you see, step back and say, I don't see that, then I agree with you, and it's the, but it's still the standard that we are pursuing. But as I was looking at this as the love one another aspects, and it's three times here, so you can't escape. This passage is primarily calling, Jesus calling his disciples and those who would be his disciples to love each other, to have love within the community that is the community of faith in the church. So why, what's this about a witness of love? And honestly, as I was preparing this, I was kind of looking and going like, this is actually, I would say, one of the strengths of Redemption Hill Church right now. The way this church loves one another is astounding to me. It's beautiful. And it's evidence of the Spirit's work in and through all of you. And so there's not a ton of like corrective. I, I felt like pastorally, like, I really need to hit this aspect because we're, we're divided over this stuff. Now, you have shown what it looks like to lay down the kingdoms of this world and unite under one King Christ. You show what it looks like to live self-sacrificially. Again, I think the bulletin board on CCB is one of the coolest things in our church because you just have people like putting requests up, putting, putting stuff up for free, people caring for one another, like, hey, here's some furniture, here's some clothes, like, whatever it is. And so the needs of the body are met. Like, that's some Acts 2 kind of stuff. There's, there's so much beauty in this church, but, I don't, but here it's important to see that it doesn't just stop with the church loving and caring for one another. This is how all people will know you are my, are my disciples. And so we need to keep this in mind. That that is a witness to the world around us. It shows Christ's glory to the world. And, and so that's a beautiful thing, but we need to keep in mind and keep our focus that way too, um, that, that we have the opportunity to show the love of Christ also beyond the, this place. You know, it doesn't talk about loving the world here. So are we not supposed to? Theologian Don Carson said, at the risk of confounding logic, it's not so much that Christians are to love the world less as they are to love one another more. Better put, their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as the children of God, reflecting the mutual love of the Father and of the Son and imitating the love that has been shown them. Their love for the world is the love of compassion, forbearance, evangelism, and empathy. Since all true Christians recognize that they can never be more than mere beggars telling others where there is bread. Francis Schaeffer called love within the church the final apologetic in his book, The Mark of the, Mark of the Christian. He said, we can't expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. And so it starts here, but we need to understand that this is, this is not just something that Jesus calls us to for our good, though it is for our good. It's not just something Jesus calls his people to for the good of others in their church, which it is for the good of others in our church. That this is, this is the final apologetic, that it is a witness to the world that Christ is true and that God is love. You feel that weight, church? Like that, God is showing his love to the world through us and how we act together and toward others who claim Christ. We say in Redemption Hill regularly that the primary hermeneutic of the gospel, the way we interpret what God has done and the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ is the community of the church. 
And so as a reminder to you, this is part of like what we count on as a church is we don't do big splashy evangelistic events. We don't go and what we focus on as a church is equipping our people to be able to live on Christ's mission in our city. That we, that we have our community groups and the hope of our community groups is that they are a real, loving community together. That, that this is a town that people don't just love each other in D.C. Like you meet, this is why when you meet, this, this is the tragic thing. Like I know it's not all the time, but we've all had this experience, right? Where you meet somebody and it's like, okay, what do you do? And if your job doesn't line up with their spheres that they want to have a connection into, they're like, all right. <laughs> like it's contacts, not friendship. That's a beautiful opportunity for the church to be able to say, here's a place where anyone can come in and be loved just for being one made in the image and likeness of God and being worthy of that dignity and respect and honor and love. That real love and community can lead the way into deeper discussions about faith and, and, and spirituality in Christ and that, that those conversations can begin to tear down barriers that people might have to faith so that they can come in and join the family of God as a brother and sister in Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is my hope for you. We really believe that this is true and that Christ is God incarnate, that he laid himself down for, uh, for you and was raised to life for you, that this is the hope we have for forgiveness and for salvation and that you can come in and be a part of the family of God and join us in this work of extending God's love both to each other and into our city because there's a call to the witness of love along the way. So, is love all we need? Well, again, if it's the love of God in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, extended to others, then yes. But it's not just about self-sacrifice and self-discovery. Like, that's not a new thing. Like, this is, again, back in 1967, the Beatles said, nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. Well, hopefully there's more to our lives than just figuring out who we are. Church, this is our call. It's to love and it's to love so well that other people see it and see Jesus in it. There's a lot of nonsense out there in the name of Christianity. And, and for those of you who are skeptical of it, I agree. It's nonsense. Don't buy it. For those of you who are discouraged, don't get so caught up in broader problems and narratives and movements that you, that you don't love the people that God has put right around you in real life. And remember, you know, when... When Christians don't love you well, don't forget that Jesus is talking to how many disciples here? Eleven. Judas had left. He left to betray him. And, G and he knew it. But Jesus still loved Judas. And as we saw last week, he loves his own to the end. So yeah, there's times where it's going to hurt and you take a hit because you love well. That's what Christ has modeled for us. And so this is the call to us today, love. Love God with all that you are, with your heart and soul and mind and strength integrated together as he heals you and brings you together to make you whole. Love your neighbor as yourself and the people around you as yourself, self-sacrificially so that they can see and experience the love of God in Christ through you. And then we're also called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because in the midst of it all, that's what points to hope in Jesus. 
As he said, and this is for us, church, as we look at what does it mean to be a church, what does it mean to follow Jesus, well, the first thing he said to his disciples as he was leaving them with this last teaching, this farewell discourse, is he said, little children, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, this is hard for us. It's hard because a lot of us have a hard time feeling loved. The idea that you know everything about us And you love us. Right where we're at, but also the kind of love that's transformative and calls us to where you are. So I pray that this morning you would move first in our hearts that we might experience and taste the depth of your love for us that's been shown in Christ. That your spirit would move so that we could feel your presence and trust that we are fully known and fully loved. And Father, out of that place, would you, would you give us such freedom and hope and confidence in the love you have for us that we can begin to extend something of it to the people around us. Lord, forgive us for when we've been unloving to one another. And if there's something that we need to make right in our own lives with another person, especially another person in our church family, I pray that you would bring conviction by your spirit that we wouldn't be able to sleep tonight until we try to make it right. We pray that you would continue to work in and among and through your people, through Redemption Hill, through other churches, through Christians globally to show love and unity that points to Jesus. And so today, Lord, would you help us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.